Right, Harry, did you see that ludicrous display last night? Can he tee up someone in red? In it goes to Watford! It's Watford! What's about that? And welcome back to the All Nations Football Podcast with myself, Joseph, and my very good friend, Owen. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. We've had an absolute mare try to get this on the air this week, haven't we, Owen? Yeah, we really have. We tried recording on Thursday. We had connection issues earlier in the week. We were busy. We couldn't fit in the time to record. And it's now Friday. And we're hoping that by Friday night, this will be live to listen to or watch. Yeah, we might have to start using carrier pigeons to drop copies of our podcast or something at this rate because we've just had everything against us this week. It's those frozen lands up in Scotland that's made it difficult. It's nothing to do with the Welsh internet connection. It's all up north. It's not even, it's now raining rather than snowing here. Oh, there we are. Well, I know is the weather's glum and it's getting a bit glummer down here too as well. Um, and we're on the verge of another two-week lockdown in Wales, as you already know, Owen. I've got until six o'clock to get to the pub to enjoy a slurp for the last time for two weeks. And it's very depressing. Yeah, I've not, we've not had any pubs open here since the start of October, so. I didn't realise that. Has that, has that been a, you've not been able to get a drink anywhere? I've not had a pint in the pub since, I think, September. Yeah, but you're an absolute, you know, monument of a man, aren't you? Your body's a temple. Yeah, I'm a very well-respected member of society. <laughs> Enough guff, anyway. Let's get down to what we've come here to discuss, which is the football, of course. Um, so, well, it, there was much to discuss from the previous week's action in the Premier League. Um, as you could probably all guess, um, again, the headlines dominated by VAR. Um, I've got so many thoughts and so many feelings on this topic, as you know, Owen. Um, not just in relation to my team. There was a couple of really, really bad decisions went against Aston Villa and Everton this weekend. Um, I'm going to let you open on this one. What was your feelings from this weekend's um, action and... Yeah, well, just try and make sense of it to me, Owen, why they made these decisions, because I, I, I'm losing faith. Um, uh, well, I don't really know what to say. It's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> VAR was brought in so that we had the correct decisions, but the problem is that the correct decision isn't always the, the fair decision. So, like, there's offside calls, which are technically, by the rules of offside, they are all offside. So, Manny's goal against whoever, well, you can argue about where, when they draw the lines, when they pull the play. But generally, they are all offside by the letter of the law. It's just that the offside rule originally was brought in before we had technology. So, it was obviously the forward gaining an unfair advantage. But a linesman obviously couldn't see if it was really tight, then the linesman couldn't see it. They always they always said originally, before technology, you had to have daylight between the um, attacker and the defender. And now it's millimetres. So 
I don't think it's VAR that's the issue. I think it's offside rule. I think the offside rule and the rules of the game now have to adapt <laughs> technology. You're not going to take technology away from football. Like people saying Jordan Henson and others and people at Match Today, etc., whoever, saying we should rid the game of VAR. That isn't going to happen. So there's no point at having a lengthy debate saying let's get rid of VAR because that isn't going to happen. So therefore, we have to work out a way to work with VAR and the rules of football have to adapt because we now have technology. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on there. Um, although I have been uh, encouraged by players calling for it to be um, abolished. I mean, we discussed this, haven't we, on, on numerous pods now. Um, and a couple of weeks ago, I pretty much came out and, and said that I, I believe... Um, we should just go back to the old way, leave it down to human error. I, I really, really had had a guts full of it, and I'm still in that camp. But I appreciate what you're saying. There's a lot of time and money that's been invested into this. They're, they're, mainly the resource is the reason that it will be kept, is because they've tried to make this work and thrown so much at it. And I think you're right. The system was introduced for the right reasons. It's been implemented incorrectly. And I also think you're right on the fact that the rules haven't adapted with the technology. That being said, I don't think we can continue to watch this product, which we've been watching this season for the remainder of the season. I think we discussed this on a pod, didn't we, uh, only a few weeks back about can they change the rules in the mid-season? They have to do something about this. They have to. It, it's, it's, it's ruining games. It's costing teams um, vital points. Um, I don't I hate losing Liverpool as the example because we all know I've got I'm such a big Liverpool fan, but it's the difference between being four points clear at the top of the table at the moment um, and, and not. And it, it, is, it is frustrating. I always say it works itself out evenly over the, the balance of the season. And I still do believe that that will be the case, even for Liverpool and those teams who've been, let's say, on the, the, the bitter end of it more often than not. Um, but I certainly think you're right. Those, those rules need to be adapted and they need to be changed and it needs to be done instantly. You you, you sent me a, an interesting suggestion uh, on the Everdeez, um sorry, rules. Can you shed any more light on that, Was Can you remember how what, how they play it? So Yeah, so in Holland, the offside rule works. So if the two lines are touching, so when it goes to VAR and the blue line and the red lines are touching, it's not offside. So if the red line's ahead of the blue line, but it's still touching the blue line, um, then they decided that's not offside because it's too marginal. So therefore, they're saying no one's actually gaining an advantage. So Ollie Watkins' goal would have counted. And one of the Liverpool goals, I can't remember which one, would have counted at the weekend. Manny's goal against Everton, obviously, would have counted. Uh, I think one of, them, one of Everton's goals. Can I, can I just say, the, the, uh, the incident in the Everton game was not VAR... VIR's fault. It, it was the it was the officials managing the technology and the on-field referee because they took the frames too late. It, it was that it was that much of a mistake. The others, I suppose you can, as you said, if you're going to the technical letter of the laws, they were all correct. Yeah. So basically, the idea is that marginal offsides are no no longer offside in Holland because. They are marginal, and you don't you don't gain an advantage from your armpit being offside, or your in Ollie Watkins' case, I genuinely think if he had a skinhead, um, he wouldn't have been offside. Like that's just 
fucking stupid. Like they, that's just it doesn't make any sense. So therefore, they're saying that therefore they they would be goals. Oli Watkins' goal would have counted for Villa, and yeah, um, Manny's one. Even if you talk about the frames being taken at the wrong time, even taking that into account, if going by the rules in Holland, it would have counted as a goal, even with taking the frames at the wrong time. So, um, so yeah, so I think that's good, and I think that would be an improvement. They sort of changed their stance on handball halfway through the season, so they could probably change their stance on offside halfway through the season. Um, but the other, the other question is when they go to VAR for calls and offside. So the penalty given for Brighton against Liverpool at the weekend. Um, the fact um, in the Champions League, I know it's two different competitions, but in the Champions League, Red's yellow card for the slightest of patches to the head. And then Fred's second yellow card for a slight tackle when he wins the ball. Like when's VAR, when does VAR come into play and when does VAR not come into play? I think um, our kind of general idea um, is one I understand they do in the NFL and one that they do in tennis where you can appeal to go to the VAR if you feel that the referee's made an incorrect decision. So therefore, the VAR can never call over the referee unless the opposition requests that the referee looks at a decision and they say have three claims and every time they make a false claim, they they lose uh they lose a call basically so therefore if they make three false claims during a match of the VAR never then a fourth bad mistake in the game then there's nothing that can be done because they've made their calls and they know they knew the rules before the game started. That yeah, was- in NFL in NFL I think if you have two successful challenges you get a third. Okay. Um, but that's because the, you you know it may indicate that the referee's just having a bit of a shocker. We discussed that before. I actually forgot. We, we, we've had that discussion and I, I remember I suggested you could use those challenges in that system as a way of being able to measure and monitor the referee's performance as well. So if a referee's had, you know, if he's constantly having his, his decisions challenged and overturned, it's an indicator that they're probably not to the standard that they should be. Likewise, if a referee's consistently making correct decisions and the challenges um are, are incorrect then you know you're being ref correctly i i think it it also gives the, the the coaches the opportunity to voice their themselves on the sideline as opposed to going over and giving arbitrary yellow cards for for sometimes for things the referee hasn't even heard um i think it, i just think that would be a great system it's a great show the only issue i agree i think it will be a great decision the only issue is so much of football is subjective so therefore um just taking two two calls that have happened in the past week. The first one we'll go to will be the Liverpool, the Brighton's penalty against Liverpool. Andy Robinson clicks. Clicks with the ball pace foot? Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, he, he clips it. And the referee decides that that's a penalty. And I think a lot of referees would see the exact same decision and say that's not a penalty because he's not actually hit him he's not actually contacted the foot with any contact he's not not like he's interfered with the play it's not like if Mopay's not clipped then he could go on and score or even gain any kind of an advantage Brian haven't lost any advantage from Robinson's slightly grazing Mopay's foot 
I think the other issue there as well, and you can look to rugby and, and other sports like this, that that decision was made by the VAR referee based... I, I don't believe the on-field referee actually clocked the incident. Play carries on and then he was brought back retrospectively. Now, I, I'm not completely against that idea, but if the referee hasn't seen it and doesn't deem a circumstance to need refereeing, I don't see why VAR should interfere. If it is a serious incident, like an off-the-ball off the fight, a headbutt, something which the referee hasn't seen but needs to be cited, then it should be cited either during the game or afterwards because it's a serious matter. Something uh, like a foul, which, as you said, Owen, most 90% of referees wouldn't have given. VAR shouldn't be stepping in and making a judgment call for a referee or even, I just think that whole system is there for the referee to choose to use, not for VAR to dictate to the referee what decision it should be making. We're seeing this purely cosmetic procedure of telling the referee to go over and have a look at the screen. When you already know if he's been advised to do that, then they are going to give the referee, they are going to give the decision. The only person who's not done that was David Coote in the Man United game. He's the, he's the referee who's been brought up into most into question over the past couple of months for his terrible refereeing decisions. So it, it, I just find the whole system very, very frustrating. Uh, the way it's being utilised at the moment almost negates the need to have an on-field referee. You've got somebody with a camera who can see the whole field, every single incident, every single angle. Why is there a referee on the field? They, they, I, I don't think you need one anymore with the way that Stockley Park are working. So if you're going to have a man on the field, let him ref the game. If he needs another angle and he needs to see something again, or his linesman and his assistant referees bring his attention to something, then you go and have a look at it. But I just think VAR looking for every crumb of bad play per game is completely damaging the game, is ruining the product. And as you said, it's, it's leading to so many bad decisions. You've had almost half the amount of penalty calls for the entire season already up until this point from, yeah. la from last season. It's crazy. That's fucking crazy. There's a couple of other points I wanted to add on to that. One, first, not wanted to go back too much to the Liverpool penalty because we've gone on that. I think that the, the ref, in the eyes of the referee, Robinson kicked a ball and but he actually didn't kick the ball. So therefore, VAR said, actually, no, he's not kicked the ball. He's kicked a player. So I don't know, maybe, maybe there's an argument. But anyway, moving on from that, um, and you talking about the referees not actually refereeing the game, that needs to change 100%. You can't have four or five times during a game where you've stopped in the game for a minute, two minutes to analyse a decision that's pretty basic. Yeah. Oh, we're getting six, seven, eight minutes of added time at the end of games regular now. And the, the other point is this offside thing. It's really, really frustrating. If there's a goal um, and offside, like if you have those offside lines, if there's a goal, you look at those offside lines and you're like, okay, cool. You, with the idea that if they're touching, it's not offside, you decide it pretty quickly. You might still have a slight delay between the goal going in and saying that, that it's a goal, but it should be decided within, within a minute. So that will improve things. And the, the other issue um, that we talk about is this handball. And when, when um, the handball will, will needs to change, one, it needs to change in the box when it's a penalty. 
but doing these change where if it grazes your arm and then you score it, it's disallowed. Like that, that rule, I do not understand why that was ever brought in. I, I don't get why if you're gaining no advantage from it's touching your arm, why your goal would be disallowed. The, that that is a rule. The handball rule in football needs to be changed massively and quickly. There's no discretion between the distances now as well, Owen. That's what I don't. I just don't understand. It doesn't. Um, I mean, listen, all you've got to do is listen to the professionals, haven't you? You know, the guys who've done it, Carragher and Neville, two of the best defenders in Premier League history, they're saying every week, you, 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 can't, you cannot defend with your body in these positions. You're not trained like that as a child. I mean, you know, again, is it a case of we need to change the game to fit the rules? Surely the rules change to fit the game. And I, I, I just, there's so many angles wrong with it. You're right. And, and I think VAR covers, as you said, the handballs, offsides, off-the-ball incidents, uh, phases of play that have gone on, maybe two or three phases after an incident. There's so many grey areas in each of those subcategories that they have to address. And it's only when they do that that they'll get the product that they wanted out of VAR. But if, in terms of, like you were saying, offside, do you think, I think a lot, what a lot of people are saying is the offside rule should be from the feet. Where would you stand on that? No, I... I... Don't agree with that. I think the offside rule has to be from the place where you're able to, from any part of your body you're able to score with. Because if you if you're making a diving header and you're leaning forward a yard, your head and your head's offside and you header it in, then you're offside. Even if your feet are a yard behind you, like I don't, yeah, I don't agree. I think it has to be from any part of your body which you can score from. Um, but I think it should be like we've discussed in Holland, where if it's less than, well, they say it's a line to touch, but to give like measurements, if you're less than, say, a centimetre offside, you're not offside. And, and, and as you say, it's such a quick decision. They've had, um, well, I don't think these, from the reports that I've seen anyway, people aren't as unhappy in, in Holland with the product that they've been receiving. Um, and and that, that rule is, I think they're the only country who implement that rule, aren't they? The only country I've heard of who have, yeah. One thing I want to also kind of add on this, this is not an English football issue, though. VAR has issues worldwide. So I've, I've seen a few people on social media saying, oh, it's just like the people complain about VAR so much in other countries. Yeah, they do. The Champions League, I, I, I think I, I pointed out to you, didn't I? There was a few inconsistencies um, yeah. around, you know, only two weeks ago. Um, if you look at the Premier League game, yeah, you're right. They are having issues with it in every country. I just, I, I just feel with the resources that we have in the Premier League, um, that, that, that it would have been implemented a, a bit better than, than what it has been. And as we said, there's so many facets that they have to still, like, you know, who, who takes responsibility for that as well. I think you have to give some of this responsibility to players and people within the game currently playing the game and allow them to agree on the terms um, because if you know if the guys who are playing the game agree to the terms and agree to the rules, they can't have any complaints when it goes against them. No, but the point is that we're talking about. So we've got a World Cup coming up. The Euros are too soon to kind of worry too much about. But the World Cup's obviously coming up in Qatar in um, 2022, the winter of 2022, and we need to make sure that VAR is as perfect as it possibly can be for that World Cup because. We've had it, we would have had it pretty much in place for international football for four and a half years at that point. 
Um, and so, so it needs to be sorted before that. And it, so that means that FIFA need to sort it, not the Premier League, not the Black League, not La Liga, not any leagues in Asia, whatever. The FIFA have to sort VAR. FIFA need to take ahead of this and they need to be speaking to people within football and footballers, ex-footballers, managers, and also referees as the best way to move forward. Because three, three years into this um, experiment, we're still having teething problems that really, they need to be ironed out and they need to be ironed out. I wouldn't say teething problems so much. I'd say it's like a pair of wisdom teeth coming through at the same time. That's how it feels for some. But yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, to be fair, the, the best time I think I've ever seen VAI implemented was at the World Cup in Russia. Yeah, there was a few dodgy, there was a few calls, calls I remember. I mean, I remember a penalty going for Portugal, which was very, very unlucky. Um, someone jumping off a header and basically it hitting their arm where it was headed to that onto the arm from like a yard away. It was very, very badly used at the Women's World Cup. In fact, it was absolutely diabolical, some of the VAR calls at the Women's World Cup. We can only hope. We can only hope that we are there. Uh... By the way, before we go off on VAR, was we did talk about the fact that the idea of just not using VAR in Japan this season, they they did do that. They decided going into the new season with all the trouble of COVID, with all the issues, they thought, why don't we just get rid of VAR this year? And they haven't used VAR in Japan this season as they just felt that it was an extra worry on top of everything else. So I don't know whether that, that would be a short-term fix while VAR issues were sorted. Well, as I said earlier, I think there's too much resource. There's been too much thrown into it for them to abandon it now. Um, right, sure. and, and that's the way it'll be. But I, again, I'm not saying I'd necessarily completely advocate for it to be abolished. I think we all have our moments where we think, oh, fuck this, you know. But I, And I was definitely like that last weekend. But I do want to see it implemented correctly because I do think it'll benefit the game massively as well. Um, another talking point, anyway, from last weekend... Something a bit closer to home for you, Owen. Um, Man United, like Jekyll and Hyde at the moment. Uh, great, great comeback win against Southampton. I'd probably say the, the most entertaining game from last weekend. Um, I was over the moon, of course, when we seen James Ward Prowse pop in that second. But um, Ollie, yeah, what, what, what's going on? What, what, what do you make of these performances? Um, I think that finally Man United are starting to find some form. Um, obviously still has questions question marks over him um, in the week um, they lost 3-1 to PSG but they actually played pretty well said to you in the week it was I actually enjoyed watching Man United um, in the last few weeks and that's been like a lot for a lot of the time in the last kind of three four years watching Man United is more of a chore than a pleasure and they're starting to be a joy to watch um, like people like Rashford are finding their form. Rashford took a while to get into um, his form this season. Um, Van der Beek maybe is starting to become a picture of the team. And generally, I just think that Man United are starting to find their feet. I was actually looking at the table and Man United won their game in hand and a couple of other results go their way. They could only be three points off the lead um, going into Christmas. And I mean, 
when you consider all the questions asked of um, Oleganda Shorska, that's crazy. Um, talking about the inconsistencies, that's is a big issue. And I think a lot of that's down to the fact that they can't have a settled back four or a settled kind of 11, to be honest with you. Um, and once once Shorska can, can nail down his side, which it looks a wee bit more nailed down at the mind, and Martial can find it find his form and start scoring, then I think they will be a fairly solid side. And as I say, they could be well within the title race come, come Christmas, New Year, which means that maybe, just maybe, Shorska can turn it around. I say this, two or three more bad results the other way. They have a really bad Christmas and then nine points off the lead going into the new year. I think that's game over for Shorska because he's had so many chances. I really do feel he's on his last one. Do you think they will get rid of him within the season? Do you, do you not think they would give him till the summer? It depends. If they have another performance like the Spurs game, I think he'd be gone. I think if there was another another performance like the Spurs game, like, for example, if Liverpool or Man City put six past United this season, I don't think Schultz would recover from that. Yeah, I can't see that happening, but as much as I would love to. <laughs> yeah, did you? Well, no, I mean, who are they, who are they, you know, if you're looking at the top three, um, for me, I can't see, I can't see many of them dropping points. I, I, and I can't see, if I'm being honest, completely honest, Man United being anywhere near the, the, the title race come the new year. Um, but yeah, I, I just wanted to ask your opinion on that because, you know, like I said, they are like Jekyll and Hyde at the moment. One time they're really timid and, you know, it doesn't seem like there's much, they're going to be doing much. And then all of a sudden they pull out good results. And I think you're right to say they were a little bit hard done by in the week, Fred going off. Uh, there's no great shame in losing to PSG anyway. Um yeah, I just find them a very odd entity at the moment, Manchester United. The thing is, right, so obviously, well, not obviously, but they've got West Ham over the weekend, and then next up after that is Man City. Um, so if they were to take six points from those two matches, I'd imagine confidence going into the Christmas period would be sky high. Absolutely, absolutely. And, uh, well, as we said, Manchester City, Liverpool... Again, good win in the week, but yeah, I have dropped points the last two Premier League weekends. Uh, so while we're on the topic of teams uh, doing well, doing not so well, Arsenal losing to Wolves now find themselves in 14th place in the Premier League. I don't know whether it's just me who keeps on fucking jinxing people because it was only a couple of weeks ago I said Arsenal will finish third. Yeah. What's going on? Should I even be on this podcast? No, Arsenal have fallen apart and Mick Arteta's fallen apart. And maybe you were just right in the first place. Mick Arteta's shit and he should be sacked. And no, no, I don't think that at all. I think Arsenal, I think it's difficult because because there is only um only one team can win every match or um you only one team could lose every match. But basically what I'm trying to say is I think Arsenal haven't been horrific all season. They've just had bad periods. Um, but they suffer massively from the fact that they rely on certain players being really good for them. Um, and like Willian, for example, had in stages this season looked all right, but generally he's looked like he wasn't the greatest of signings. Then they've got a player like Urza who's on 
ridiculous amounts of money and isn't anywhere near the side. And they've got Abanyan, who's just not, after all the talk of saying they've Arsenal have to keep him, Arsenal have to find any way to keep him in the team, he's just not had a very good season so far. And like is that's the same. It's just their the, the front force isn't very good this season and isn't helping them and this isn't scoring enough goals. I think that what I credited him with most uh, was changing the sort of culture at Arsenal, becoming organised, more difficult to beat. Um, certainly towards the tail end of last season, found that that was um, very much the case. He, he did very well against Liverpool, of course, a couple of good victories where he had the results against Manchester City as well. The FA Cup final win, the Community Shield win at the beginning of this season against Liverpool. So all the indicators were there. Um, I, you know, I'm so surprised, so surprised by how south they've gone um, in the past couple of months. I think Aubameyang, now you're looking at him, he's 33 years of age. Yeah, we were, we were screaming, weren't we? You have to keep him, otherwise you're going to struggle. He hasn't turned up and they're, and they're pretty much in the position you would have expected them to be if he would have left. That, that, that was very much the feeling anyway. They have made a couple of good signings. I like, I like Gabriel in centre-half. I think he would be a good player... You know, I think there's still a lot more to come from him. He's young, but they just don't seem to be. It's all right when you're setting up to play difficult against the team which you expect to lose against. So if you know anybody in the league can turn up to Liverpool and Man City, and you know and lose and maybe go, oh, all right, yeah, we'll we'll take that. You know, it's it's not the end. But when you have to go out and be expected to play, it's very very different. And I think that's what Arsenal are finding now. You have to. They, they need to find that balance of the old Arsenal who could outplay anybody, but also this new Arsenal that can be pragmatic, can be difficult and doesn't have to string 400 passes together before they score a goal. And, and, and I, I think he's struggling to find that balance. And to be honest with you, I, I, I don't think he's going to get given much more time to turn that around if, if, if they're still lingering in the bottom half of the table come the end of January. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of put a finger pointing going on at that club. And um, who do you blame, the players or the manager? Good question. Do you play? Do you blame people like Ambangian um, and Lacazette for not turning up? And the fact is, when they sit back and defend against better opposition, they um, they they struggle because they don't have anyone up top who's actually providing the goals at the moment. So, like, this is one point I kind of made. I don't know if I made it on the podcast or I just made it um, to you and to other people after the game against Arsenal against Man United. I said that Arsenal won the game 1-0 and everyone praised Arsenal for their defensive performance. But I was like, like, Man United get a uh, cheeky goal in that game instead of Arsenal. Man United win that game 1-0. Then you talk about how Arsenal defended too deep, didn't... didn't um, attack enough and take enough risks and that's just it their, their games um, their games are happening on two finer margins so if if one thing goes on within that setup then that probably means they will not win and they're not he's not taking enough risks for me uh, Mick Arteta isn't isn't taking enough risks and if he wants to start winning games and he wants to start getting Arsenal back up to the table, he's going to have to be a bit more risky in the way in which he sets out his side. Yeah, I was going to say, I, I think 
Do you look to signings now in January to try and rectify that? Does he look to within for what he's got? There's a lot of a number of very talented kids at Arsenal. He's brought through players like Saka. You know, I, what do you think the, the the solution is there? Do they need a big overhaul? Do they? Is it a case of just giving him more time? There, there's there's so many questions there, isn't there? I think the real thing is he has to strike the balance. And also, I don't think he's necessarily picking his best team every week or maybe knows his best team. And there's certainly a few players there who just haven't pulled their weight. You're looking at Pepe, 72 million. He's, he's nowhere near that. You know, he's nowhere near that price tag. Lacazette hasn't been great for seasons. You know, it's not just this season. I think last season wasn't that great. Season before that wasn't that great. You have to get rid of him. As you say, Mesa Ozil, it's three hundred and fifty grand a week. Yeah. He's, he's not. He's not even. He's not even in uh, named in the Premier League squad. He's not registered. So there's a lot of things to to, to deal with there. Where, where do you think? What What is a good season look like to Arsenal now? Would you say? Right, where, if how do they pull this around? Where do they finish? Well, I mean, I think if they were able to put this back and finish in the top four, that would be a great season. Still, and that's very realistic. They could do that. Um, but with everyone, I think I don't think they are in the top four best teams in the country, and I don't think they've got they're in the top four squads. So I think if they could finish within a Europa League place, they'd be doing all right. I know I know that's not great reading for Arsenal fans, but I think if they finish in a Europa League place, I think really then they go and try and win the Europa League, so they're in the Champions League next year. I think that's. I think that's the very best they could hope for. Hope they could hope for this season. And before we we, we move on, uh, are you surprised by some, maybe some of the negativity that that Arteta has picked in his side in, in terms of his tactics and what he's tried to implement? Considering we, you know, you know, he's he's played under Arsene Wenger, he's coached alongside Pep Guardiola. Were you expecting to see a little bit more zest about them? Yeah, you. It kind of reads like he doesn't trust his players to to play like that fluid, expansive football. Um, so he, it does slightly surprise me, but it, it slightly it would concern me more if I was an Arsenal fan that he, yeah, he doesn't have enough trust in his in his eleven that he puts out on the pitch to play the kind of football that he wants. Because I don't believe that Mick Arteta's football philosophy is to sit back, defend and score on the counter against Liverpool or even Man United. Like, I don't think that's his, I don't think that would be his philosophy if he could pick the 11 and he could make signings. I just think he's not all really happy with the current 11 that, or the current squad that he's got currently at Arsenal. And to be fair, being pragmatic and defensive and difficult to beat his work for him up to a point, but he's um, he's certainly got to start looking for uh, for alternatives. And um, well, I suppose whilst whilst we're on the topic of a North London club, um, we've discussed last week's action. Let's have a little look at uh, the upcoming fixtures for the weekend. And there is a North London derby taking place, which is certainly my pick of the games from the from the coming weekend. You've got Chelsea and Leeds there as well, which which looks like it could be a quite tasty game. But North London derby, very rarely does it um, does it fail to entertain. Always great games. And it really is the tale of two sides at the moment, isn't it? Complete, on completely different scales, completely different motives. Confidence is high in the Spurs camp. Um, 
I mean, are you expecting Spurs to go out and, and humble them or are you expecting a more, well, two very pragmatic approaches? You've got Mourinho, who's Mr. Pragmatic, isn't he? As we've seen against Chelsea, are we going to see two teams park the bus? What are we going to see? I'd imagine we'll see um, a Tottenham team attack a little bit more and I imagine Arsenal would be the team that sits back further. Um, people like Kane and Son will obviously be used as they have been for Tottenham. Um, I'd be very surprised if Tottenham don't win this weekend, if I'm honest. And I think they might even win by a couple of goals. Were you surprised by the Chelsea game? Did you see the Spurs-Chelsea match? It was nil-nil. Um, Chelsea very much the team with the possession. Probably should have taken a couple of their chances, particularly Olivier Giroud at the very depth of the game. Um, I, I think it gave us a little insight into where Spurs really are, if I'm being completely honest. And I think, as much uh, as you say about Arteta, I, I still think there's a uh, there's a part of Mourinho who doesn't completely trust his players to go out and play and demolish teams when they need to. But he does seem to have his old mind games back. His mentality is very much like the old Jose. Remember, though, that Tottenham didn't have the strongest back four. So he didn't want to leave his back for Joe Roden was making his Premier League debut. He didn't want to leave him bare at the back. Um, so he had to be a bit more pragmatic than he maybe would be if he'd had his first choice um, back four playing. So I think that's part of what it was, his, his decision making was against Chelsea. Chelsea have started to fire in the goals. Um, so you need to be careful. Chelsea's main strength is scoring. Um, and the Chelsea game against Man United went a very similar way. And I think Lampard doesn't want to lose against the big sides. Um, and Mourinho didn't want to lose against the big sides. So they kind of discounted each other out because neither of them wanted to lose that game. Um, I don't know. I, I don't want to say if you'd asked me beforehand, I would have said this is going to be a down no no um, because I maybe wouldn't have done. But not overly surprising when you look at Chelsea. I think Chelsea have decided that they beat the teams below them and if they can get at least a point from the teams around them, then they should have a decent chance in the title race. Yeah, and it just seems like a very fair and sensible tactic to, to try and employ, doesn't it? And usually the teams who do that well do tend to be there or thereabouts by the end of the season. I found it particularly interesting, Jose's comments after that game, um, about saying, oh, you know, this is a Spurs team. When Spurs come to the bridge, they usually lose. He said, I've got a, a, a dressing room full of disappointed players in there. It's and and you could, you, yeah, and you're, you could kind of tell it, you know, they would have been buzzing with that point. And you know, he would have been buzzing with, buzzing with that point, walking away from the bridge with something. Um, do you think Jose's mind games and the way that he's managing this team? And certain individuals in the team is probably Tottenham's best strength because I think that's what's going to get them further than their playing quality, if I'm being honest. Yeah, I mean, not to forget they do have in Son and, ba and Kane, sorry, they do have two of the best attackers in the Premier League and probably two, two in the Oh, in the world. Yeah, yeah. in the world. Yeah. In the world, they're, they're up there. And move, probably any team in the world would like Son and Kane within their side. So, so like they do have some very good players in their team, um, and they've got a very good goalkeeper as well, Hugo Lloris. Oh, he has his moments. 
Yeah, yeah, he does have moments, but don't know who he was. Not Alisson. Even Alisson. But anyway, no, so I think I think the Tottenham are maybe greater than the sum of their parts with Mourinho, but it's not like they're an average side performing well above what they should be doing. I think with um, Pochettino, sorry, I forgot Pochettino's name for a second. In Pochettino, they just... They never seem to fully have the belief that they could go that one step further. And I think Mourinho's gives his players a belief that they can achieve anything. Every time they go out on the pitch, Mourinho gives his players the belief that they are the best, they are the better side, whoever they're playing against. So I think that does massively help Tottenham. And I think he is building a very good team there, whether they'll be in the top to come like April time, we shall see. Um, I don't think they will win the title, but I do think they'll comfortably be in the top four and they will be in a title race at least until the last couple of months of the season. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. Do you think they can do it? I don't think they, they, they can go the distance. I think, as I said, I think Jose seems back to his old ways. He's got a, you know, he's the greatest shit house in, a football, in football in history. He knows how to get results where he wants to get his results. I very much think Mourinho is a man who, who looks at a fixture list and can see or decides where he's going to take his points from. I don't think many managers work like that these days, but I, I, I certainly think he's a man who, who picks his games. And although you could say in some ways their tactics are archaic, I think you're right. I think when you've got two strikers with the quality they've got, as long as you're defending well, and you know they don't play particularly glitzy football. It, it doesn't. It goes. It gets shifted through the midfield so quickly to the front two. It's essentially we defend well, we shift the ball forward quickly, and we're gonna they're gonna try and use the the quality that they've got in the top end of the field. I don't know if that is enough of a tactic to win you a league. I think you have to have it all. I think you have to be able to win ugly. You have to be able to win pretty. Be pragmatic. I just don't think I don't think Tottenham have got all of that within them, if, if I'm being honest. But it remains to be seen. They've certainly made a better start than anybody would have credited, credited them with. He made signings in the summer, which you wouldn't have stereotypically associated with Jose Mourinho. You're thinking of Doherty, Hoiberg, really honest, hard-working players, but they're not the big names that you would usually associate with Jose Mourinho buying him. But they've, they've been the best players because they're just getting the job done and they're being pragmatic. So yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see to see where they can finish off the season. Never, um, I've got um, thought, um, assigned hip stop and Doherty's name above my head. I never thought that I'd have a signed football top of a Premier League winner. So you never know, right? Before <laughs> uh, we do move on, though, sorry from um, um, we were talking about Chelsea. There, I'm going to have to ask you a question. I hope you don't mind. Yes. So, um, We've got some listeners who are Chelsea fans and they took exception um, to your suggesting that Thiago Silva was over the hill rubbish and couldn't defend and was slower than a tank in mud. Um, basically, yeah. Do you think that Thiago Silva and Zuma is a good centre-half pairing? And do you think that Chelsea have a good like, defensive structure at the club now, especially with Mendy Bingles. 
listen, I don't mean to do any Thiago Silva any disrespect. I think he's had a great career in, in, in France and in Italy before that. I can't, if I'm being hand on heart, I haven't seen them produce anything where I've gone, oh, wow, that was that was great. I think Kurt Zuma is, is odd. I, I think he's played better for Chelsea this season than he's played for when he was at Everton or Chelsea previously or any other seasons he's played in the Premier League. Um, I think he played for Stoke, didn't he, at one point? You know, he, he's, he's almost coming to his own. Um, and I remember when they first brought him, there was a lot of hype around him. He can really... Uh, Highly recommended from from French football. I don't say I could I particularly rate too, but Thiago Silva, he did have that shocker when he was at fault for three goals in a game. Let's not forget that. Um, and I still think he turns like a heavy goods vehicle, but he has made a solid enough start. I I wouldn't say the particularly great defensive partnership. If you know they're not a, a Rio and Vidic, and they'll never they never will be. You know and. I don't think either of them. Um, I mean, who 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 would you say is the best Premier League defensive partnership? We all know who the best defender is. He's not playing at the moment, but I mean, obviously, it's Harry Maguire and Victor Lindelof. I was going to say Maguire and Lindelof are pretty solid choice, aren't they? So, I mean, if you want to compare them to Maguire and Lindelof, yeah, they're a great centre half partnership. Um, I think it's I think it's hard because I think. Um... All the top sides struggled to keep a centre half pairing, um, and that's why Chelsea, I think, maybe been a bit more successful at the back because it's all about kind of consistency and keeping a pairing together, and that's been a bit of an issue with everyone at the top. Um, so, yeah, I think to be fair, they are the best centre half pairing. The, the the best players in Chelsea's defence are Rhys James and Ben Chilwell. I'll I'll happily say that. I think Rhys James is, you know, he's right up there with the best right backs in the league. I think he's got a bit of everything. Um, I think there will always, I think it'll be a good comparison between him and Trent for years to come, and I think there'll be a big argument and Bissaka as well. I suppose at United, who plays for England in that spot, and Ben Chilwell. Um, he's, I mean, he's been really, really, really impressive since he's gone into that Chelsea side. He seems offensively, he seems a lot more switched on as well. He's arriving late at the back post. He's actually making a nuisance of himself at times when Chelsea are going forward. Um, I mean, we all know the best left-back is in the world as well, don't we, Owen? But I, I certainly think he's not far off him, to be honest. Kieran Tierney, yeah. Yeah, Kieran Tierney, yeah. Yeah, he's not far off him. Um, well, yeah, yeah. The, the one thing I would say then in Chelsea, a positive for Chelsea is obviously at the beginning of the season, Kepa played and it was all a bit of a diabolical situation. They now kind of have a back five and if they keep them fit, that could be a big help in their kind of title chase this season. Yeah, I, I think my, one of my main um, digs at, at Thiago Silva was his age and like this is not a back four, back five that's going to stay together for a lot of years. Uh, and, and I think you look at all of the great teams, the great Man United, Manchester United sides, they had such a settled back four, back five. Uh, well, every great Sir Alex Ferguson team did, you, you know, if, if you think of it that way. But particularly the, the one I remember the best from, from my years of growing up, you had Van der Sar, Neville, Ferdinand, Vidic and Evra. And you probably pick that five every week. You know, I know Neville had his, his injury problems or whatever, but you could pick that back five pretty much every week and it never change. And 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 I think that's that's how you that's how you do it, isn't it? All the great defenses 
They play with each other for a lot of years. You think that Juventus back three dominated Italy for the last 10 years. You know, that, that's, the, that's the way to go forward. And that's what I'd be saying to Chelsea fans. He's, you know, it, it might be okay for now, but I mean, you, you know, you're looking at the next season, you probably need to go and find another Thiago Silva. But then, but then you've only got one centre-half now that really needs to come in because Zuma, James, here... I mean, this is what I mean, is Zuma... I, I don't think Zuma gives you 38 top-quality games in a season, Owen, is, is my opinion. Okay, that's that. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, maybe Zuma isn't quite good enough for that level, but I guess time will tell on that. You have to look at the benchmarks, don't you? You look at Van Dijk, uh, Delit, Sergio Ramos. These are guys who give you like 30 to 40 world-class games a season. So, you you, you know, Benucci before, if Cialini, all of the great defenders from the last, they play, they turn up every single week. And Zuma's been, he's a handful in the opposition box. And as I said, he's played a lot better this season than I can remember him seeing playing, but I don't particularly rate him, no. But then, but then the point is, you were naming defenders that are saying, oh, they're world-class. There's only a handful of them. There's maybe 20 teams in European football who want to be competing to try and get into Champions Leagues, to try and win Champions Leagues. Um, and there's only a handful of centre-halves you're world-class, so a lot of these sides aren't going to have world-class centre-halves within their setup. Uh, but uh, Sorry, I was more alluding to the fact you said they only need to worry about one. I, I don't think that's necessarily... I don't think you can look at Zuma and go, we'll win, we'll win a lot of things with him there. I could be complete, proven completely wrong. I had Arsenal down to finish third and they're 40s at the moment, so... Yeah, so what, do I, what, what do I know? What do I know? I'm glad you asked me that question anyway. I do like to have any uh, any fan questions from fans. And, and I apologise if I have offended anybody with my uh, with my opinions. Well, I don't really, actually. I want to offend people with my opinions. I want questions and I'm more than happy to take them on. So, uh, yeah, any questions are welcome. Um, so we'll finish off this week's pod and with our Scottish segment, as we usually do, Owen. Um, I know what I want to discuss this week in Scottish football, and I'm sure you know what you want to discuss, but I'm going to start. Um, what's going on with Celtic? And you're going to talk about um, Rangers winning the title. Oh, I mean, there's always time for that. See, there's always time for that. No, I'm, I'm, um, I, as, as most people would be aware, Celtic having it really rough at the moment, and I'm sure people. Uh, other than myself, saw so some of the footage that was circulated on social media and mainstream media of uh, the Celtic fans um, essentially having a pop at the um, stadium staff and then trying to gain access to the playing staff car park and players' cars and stuff by pushing fences over and generally just being being a load of waddies. Um, what did you make of that, Owen? Because I, I messaged you at the time, didn't I? I was, what the fuck is this going to achieve? Um, bearing in mind, this is a club that has won the league for the last nine years in a row with how many trebles in, dotted in there as well? Well, there was four, four trebles in a row. How, can you imagine what it'd be like if they hadn't won a cockle for, 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 for a few years? I can't imagine it. Right, one, like... There's a couple of things I kind of want to say on this because that's kind of been what's being put forward. Like this idea of like, they've won all these trophies, what are they mourning about? Okay, and the the issues are like a lot deeper than that. And it's really like, 
no offence, but it's a really easy argument to put across. And I've seen that uh, this argument be put across by respected journalists, people who I really respect opinions of. Um, but the issue isn't so much Celtic have won all these trophies and now they're not winning and now they're crying. Um, one thing I would say is their fans um, stormed Celtic Park and what did it achieve? Well, it's got everyone talking about it and everyone talking about the fact that Lennon needs to leave and the fact that Celtic fans are unhappy. So while it wasn't good and while you can criticise their behaviour and you would be correct to criticise it because why is anyone storming anything in large groups in a global pandemic? I, I completely agree. Their behaviour was out of order, but their behaviour has got them exactly what they wanted. It's got everyone talking. It's got um, people realising that Celtic needs change. It's got Neil Lennon's head almost on the chopping block. It's it's They've achieved exactly what they wanted to achieve. So in answer to what do they achieve? Well, it, it has achieved what it wanted to achieve. It's got people realising that Celtic fans are not happy. And you can talk about whether it's the right or the wrong way. I'm not going to go further on that, but that's what they did. And that's what happened. Going on from that, um, what happens at Celtic? Why are Celtic fans unhappy? The fact is that Celtic have a um, larger player budget than Rangers. They have a stronger squad. If you look at their players man for man, um, they have a stronger squad than Rangers. Um, they, they've got a much stronger squad and a much stronger player budget than anyone else in the league outside of Rangers. But yet they've really struggled this season. They've barely hit top gear all season. There's been about three or four games all season where they've looked beaten. They were terrible against Rangers. They've been terrible in the Europa League, sometimes against teams who are probably better than them, but not a lot better than them. They've fallen apart in matches. They got a last point. night. Yeah, they fell apart against AC Milan. They were 2 0 up. They fell apart, lost 4 2. Um, Neil Lennon was asked to sign a goalkeeper to replace Fraser Foster in the summer, and he looks like he signed very, very badly. So, uh, while I appreciate that Celtic have won lots of trophies and you can say they have nothing to complain about, the point is that Celtic can feel themselves going lower and lower and slipping very quickly and there's a few players that sort of go very unhappy people like Edward and completely oh, yeah. Christian Ayer is it Ayer. Christopher Ayer Cam as well um, and then there's people like Griffiths who just doesn't look bothered by the whole thing and so if if Celtic don't act quickly Rangers are going to win the title by April Rangers will probably then also win at least the Scottish Cup and then all the League Cup, or Rangers may even win the treble. Um, then then the Rangers then have a bigger budget. They're in the last 32 of the Europa League, while Celtic had. Very quickly, Rangers then have the same budget as um, Celtic, and Celtic are behind them, and Celtic have to regroup, and it might be three or four years before they can really get another title. So... While I accept they won nine league titles um, and that was a great period for the club, it, a lot of those titles were very comfortably won because they didn't have a challenge. As soon as they did have a big, as soon as they do have a big challenge, they've, they've fallen apart. 
So I think Celtic fans and I think Celtic as a football club have every right to be disappointed in this season and have every right to be asking big questions from Neil Lennon and of many players within that Celtic squad. Um, what, what is what is the difference then, Owen? What was because I mean I've, I'll, I'll say now I think Rangers have the best player in the league by far in Ryan Kent. Every time I watch him, he just seems everyone's here and he's he's there. Yeah. And is it a case of Rangers? It's just because they've been searching and searching and searching. It just seems oh sometimes things are almost an inevitability, aren't they? You, you felt it like I, I, I will compare it to Liverpool of last season. It got to a point where it just seems inevitable it's going to happen, doesn't it? Do you yeah. get that feeling here? No, Rangers, the, the title was Rangers. Um, I can see the pain on your face. No, not quite. I mean, not quite yet. And it'd be interesting to see how they char- they, they juggle being in Europe after Christmas while Celtic can. Um, I mean, you gave me a, if I was to bet on the title now, yeah, I'd I'd put I'd put a ten on Rangers to win the treble. To be honest with you, I think um, I think unless things change at Celtic um, or there's a shock in one of the cups, Rangers will win the treble this year. They 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 barely they barely put a foot wrong all season, Rangers. And in other seasons. The start that Celtic have had, they would have got away with because they wouldn't have had anyone challenge them. So Celtic start to season and how Celtic have been performing isn't necessarily worse than some of what they did in those nine league trophies. But they didn't have someone like Rangers who were so far ahead of everyone else to challenge them. And I think that's it. I said, um, I said before, like I'd Rangers. I'm almost certain would not lose to anyone this season, except for if Celtic get their act together, they will not lose this season in the league. Um, and Celtic are very lucky that they still haven't lost in this league. Hibs should have beaten them. They got a dodgy penalty and then a dodgy free kick. Oh, Celtic were very lucky. So, um, Neil, 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 right. So, I, um, one thing I would say is, so Brendan Rodgers had Celtic playing a nice brand of football. He um, they they passed the ball around well. They didn't. I mean, Celtic haven't done that well in Europe. But forget that. In in domestic football, Brendan Rodgers had them playing good football, attractive football. Most times they played teams in the lower half of the table. They were winning three, four, five, five no. Then obviously Brendan Rodgers went to Leicester, and he was replaced by Neil Lennon who is Celtic through and through, Celtic legend as a player, pretty much a legend as a manager. But Neil Lennon had come into the role having left Hibs, and his reasons for leaving Hibs were, despite being very good for Hibs at the start, getting them back into the SPL and then finishing fourth with their highest um, Premier League points total, um, they then started to fall apart, and Hibs had play, a player like Flo Camberry, who played up front for Hibs and Neil Lennon publicly criticised him for his work ethic and just his kind of professionalism. And Neil Lennon, you could see, slowly lost the dressing room. He stopped going to um, press conferences. He um, he just started to look uninterested. And it was that's what happened with the team on the pitch. They started to look uninterested. They started to lose games. They started to drop points when they should have won games. 
the piss of football is terrible to watch toward the end. And then somehow, despite all of that, he then got the Celtic job. But And then at Celtic, it's never really been overly cheery. Nothing's been overly pretty, but he obviously won titles, he's won the Scottish Cup, and he's won the League Cup with them. So he's not done terribly. Um, he's beaten Rangers, but he's also lost them. But the same thing's happening at Celtic than happened at Hibs only a few years ago where players started to look uninterested. He started questioning the better players because they weren't giving him what he wanted. And you can just see history repeating itself again. And it would be, I think it'd be absolutely ridiculous for Celtic to hold on to him for much longer because you can see he's not going to turn it around. He's there's something mentally I don't want to see like mentally like wrong with him. That's not right. But the mentality at the club just clearly isn't right. And he needs to go as soon as possible. I think three or four players also need to go as soon as possible. Uh, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know him as well as you. I know he's had a um, brief stint um, in the English game. The year and obviously never lasted the course. And I know competition is very much different down here. But I think you're right. It doesn't seem like, and 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 the way you, if you look at Rangers, they they're just getting better and better every week. It's not, you know, they've they've peaked. They they're still not conceding goals. It's not just in Scotland either. Stevie gets the results on the continent as well, and I think that speaks volumes. I know you've said at the beginning that you Celtic have the strongest squad. I don't necessarily think that's the truth. I I. I uh, from what I've seen of both teams, not just this season, but last season, particularly in Europe as well, there's just something about Rangers. Um, I think if they turn up and they really want it, they're, they're a better team than Celtic. And I don't know whether that comes from the players, from the leadership, whether they're just more hungry after all of these years and some of the Celtic players have lost that little bit of desire and appetite. I, I really don't know. But if you look at the last game they played, Rangers were, were, were far the better side. Um, and I, it's interesting that it almost seems like Stevie's taking this, the mentality that you have in Europe if you take it one game at a time. And, you know, he's had great results against Porto, Braga, uh, some of the Italian sides, really top, top results. Uh, you know, results Celtic wouldn't have got. I'm categorically saying wouldn't have got. They beat Lazio twice last year, so... Yeah, all right. But uh, other than Lazio, they've not they've not done as well as Rangers. You can't compare it. Um, yeah, I just wanted to point out that Celtic have had big results in Europe too in recent years. So, but yeah, you, you're right. Rangers, Rangers have... a have been better. Um, I can see the point of like how can Celtic be better man for man. Um, I think Ryan Christie and Callum McGregor are still better central midfielders than Ryan Kent, but you know that. No, he's, he's Ryan Kent's a winger, isn't he? Really, he's an attacking. He's an attacking player. Um, but then, I just think Ryan Kent, the way he plays. From what I've seen, I don't know. There's just something about the boy, his mentality, his numbers since he's been playing in Scotland. He's only young as well, 23, 24. He's, he's, he's going to get better. He's, he's Premier League quality, uh, is, is my opinion. And I, and I think decent, not just like scrapping relegation. I think I, I, I really, really, really rate that boy. And I, as I said, I, do you, and which, I don't know whether you agree. Do you think Rangers, by taking it, it seems concentrating they would drop so many silly points in previous seasons 
now it seems like uh, they're just going to take that game one step at a time, almost like tournament football, you know? That seems to be, anyway, as an outsider, could be wrong. Any Rangers fan who's listening to this, I'd love to hear your opinion. But it just seems like that's the, the methodology. I don't know if any Rangers fans seem to have to play me for five minutes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, I'm siding with them anyway. I, I, would, I would love to see Rangers do it and... We all know why I'd love to see Rangers do it, but yeah, I, I would re- I'd be really chuffed to bits if if Rangers get to do it. I know I, I'm not a Scottish football fan, Owen. I can say as I please. I have no relations or links to the club. I don't care what the club stands for. I don't care about any of that crap. All I care about is Stevie G doing well, <laughs> and he is doing very well at that. Yeah. So moving on, right before we kind of this. Finish up. Um, I think it's important to talk a little bit about the other 10 teams in the Scottish Premier League. Yes, we should. So, um, well, first of all, we should give a shout out to Ross County, shouldn't we, really? Say first. So, first off, I want to say well done to Ross County. Stuart Kettlewell um, has had a lot of criticism in recent times. Ross County, for me, have been a bit like Brighton have in the English Premier League. Where they've Is got- that a uh- David uh, Kettlewell. Yeah, it's Stuart Kettlewell, uh, because not everything revolves around in English football. Uh, David De Gea is actually a Stuart Kettlewell lookalike rather than the other way around. David Kettlewell. Yeah, David Kettlewell. Anyway, so, yeah, well done to Ross County. They, in recent weeks, they've come in for criticism and it looked like Kettlewell, and Kettlewell is still kind of on a short lease at the moment. Because they, although they've attacked well, they've been absolutely dreadful at the back. So, yeah, well done to Ross County for beating Celtic. Um, they, they're still the first team out of the Rangers to beat them this season in Scotland. So, yeah, they did really well. So, first off, congratulations to them. Second off, we've, we've had a bit of drama in Scotland this week. Um, did you see the drama in Scotland this week? Uh, is this to do with the, co- uh, the COVID-19 uh, postponements right okay so basically at the beginning of the season um Aberdeen had to have games postponed and were fined because a few of their players broke COVID rules and um there was a COVID outbreak within the club and then there was an issue where Celtic had to have games postponed because one of their players Bola Golly Golly went to Spain in Iceland and returned and didn't tell anyone that he'd done that did you uh, just say Bolly Bolly Bolignoli? Is that his name? That's pretty much. Oh, right. I know him. I know. Is it the Belgian left back? Yeah. See, an absolute shrine of knowledge. This brain, absolute and, shrine. There's there was a there was issues with between um, Saint Mirren and Kilmarnock had um, COVID issues where they um, there was COVID outbreak within their clubs and they had to have games postponed against Mavua and Hamilton. So, what this has now meant is that St. Mirren's matches with Mavua and Hamilton were postponed because of COVID. They have now both been given as 3-0 victories to opposition. So, Mavua beat St. Mirren 3-0 and Hamilton beat St. Mirren 3-0. Um, so, they both they basically lost two games because they weren't a good team because of COVID. 
Um, so that's quite a big issue, especially when Hamilton are fighting relegation and St. Mirren are just behind them. That was a big call for to happen, especially, again, as I say, um, Celtic and Aberdeen were not deducted points. So in that respect, it'd be interesting to see what happens in the future. But also, in very interesting news, nine Dungeon United players are now isolating and will miss their match with Livingston this weekend. Um, but apparently the game is still due to be played. So there's a lot of COVID drama still in Scotland. Um, on the week that the vaccine was announced, we are still having a bit of drama. So Dungeon United this weekend are due to play against... Um, Dundee United are due to play against Livingston and with nine players out, maybe Livingston are going to get themselves a wee rare victory this weekend. Yeah, actually get three points. That would be interesting. Um, so yeah, so we're having some COVID drama and COVID fan over in Scotland still. Um, hopefully we'll start, uh, hopefully this will be one of the last weeks we have to talk about COVID drama. Um, but yeah. So all fun and games over north of the border. I think it's in, poignant to say as well, if we're talking about COVID drama, the Villa and Newcastle are off this week as well, aren't they, for similar reasons? Before you finish, we did have some good news to finish with, didn't we? Oh, oh, oh yes, we did. So the EFL have been... Um, the EFL and the Premier League have come to some arrangement around the relief uh, package, which uh, totals £250 million. Um, the loan is being taken in the EFL's name. This will not be, um, well, of course, has lots of benefits for the clubs within the EFL. Um, means they won't be taking any debt in the club's name and the owners, um, or whether they're owned by the fans or whatever your circumstances anyway. So clubs will be allowed to apply for a bursary. Um, I think more information is to f- set to follow on this as well. But it's a really, really positive step, I think, um, essentially just to try and preserve the game at the lower levels and and give help to the clubs who really need it the most, um, particularly those two clubs in, in League One and in League Two. You know, the championship is a lot more of a, um, how, how would you say, it's a lot more of a money spinner. The product's a lot bigger than it was, you know, even five years ago. So, yeah, it's really, really positive news for those clubs down at the bottom. And I'm, I'm sure to a lot of fans who had heard the news themselves. I mean, basically, it's 250 in in theory, 250 grand to each club, and that would just mean that things like the running costs for putting on matches at the moment, with no no fans coming in, mm. likely subsidised. They're still obviously going to be obviously working at a loss for the start of this season, but it will really benefit them, and also they start to see fans return. Um, at the moment, clubs are saying generally, with only a thousand fans in and with COVID restrictions, they're not actually gain, they're not actually making any money, and it's actually costing them to have fans back in. But obviously, it's a great start. Um, within time, we'll start to have more and more fans in. Fingers crossed, the vaccines are success, COVID numbers reduced further and further, and maybe, just maybe, before the end of the season, we will see a stadium sold out. Yeah, full full stadium. That would be glorious. Really, really would. And that's it for this week's pod. Uh, Thank you again for listening. We really appreciate it. We apologise for it arriving so late in the week. As we said, numerous technical uh, 
technical difficulties and just being very popular sociable men that stood in the way of us releasing on the usual date this week. Uh, we should be back to you as usual next week. So please stay tuned and we hope to see you again. Yeah, thank you very much. I should be in Lanzarote. I should be in Tenerife, but I've enjoyed recording this podcast more. It's been beautiful. Keep listening and goodbye. Right, Harry, did you see that ludicrous display last night? The champion is in the Can he tee up someone in red? In it goes to one. It's a trapper!